Welcome to Nebraskanomics, where we help Nebraskans remove barriers to opportunity with policy research and legislative advice. I'm your host, Jim Vogel, CEO of the Platt Institute, a Nebraska-based think tank promoting policies that make it easier to get a good job, start a business, and help Nebraskans keep more of what they earn. If you want more economic freedom in Nebraska, then let's get started. Welcome to this edition of Nebraskanomics. The Platt Institute has decided to try an unconventional approach to workforce this year, looking for ways to help those who have been incarcerated to find a place in our state's workforce. And we're going to talk about LB16 and our universal recognition bill down the road. But to that end, uh, we've also, I don't think the public knows, uh, created a micro grant program, which you're going to hear about a little bit more as I bring in my guest. And our guest today is Rhonda Mattingly. She is the executive director of Bridges to Hope. They are a recipient of one of our micro grants and one of the many nonprofits working in the re-entry field. Uh, Rhonda, welcome to Nebraskanomics. Thanks, Jim. It's my pleasure. All right. I'm going to start with you and just let you dig in and tell us a little bit about the organization's organization, Bridges to Hope, how long it's been around, why it was started, and what your mission is. Okay. Um, pastor Bud Christian was a pastor at the Nebraska State Penitentiary back in the late 90s. And he realized that the guys, when they were being released, had nothing more than the clothing on their backs. And so he started collecting clothing items from neighbors and friends and uh, congregation members and distributed them to the guys as they were leaving. But he quickly realized that, you know, they need more than just the clothing. They are starting fresh with nothing and they need beds and furniture and household goods and hygiene products. And so he, he partnered with Lutheran Family Services and they acquired a warehouse where they received donations from uh, community members and uh, then would distribute those to the men and women that had been incarcerated or justice involved at no cost to them. Um, in 2009, they became incorporated as Bridges to Hope. And in 2011, they received their 501 C3 status, nonprofit status. And um, we've been at the current location, the current warehouse since 2010. And I started, they hired me as executive director in February of 2015. So getting close to about nine years now. And we've been at the same location. Um, and, you know, I, I believe awareness has, um, has grown. Uh, the people we serve, the number of people we serve has grown. So it's finally getting the word out and people are understanding about second chances because that's what we do, second chances. Why don't you talk a little bit more about second chances and why that's important, not only to your mission, but to those that you serve in and to the state as a whole? Sure. You know, all of us have uh, made choices in our lives that have not been the best. And every one of us have received second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Um, the people that are justice involved are no different. They deserve the love, the respect, the dignity that everybody else gets. And I think there's such a stigma tied to those that have been incarcerated 
that it's our job to um, erase that stereotype and, and stigma. And um, when people are released and coming back into our communities, um, their chances of recidivism are higher if the community is not supporting them. And so we're trying to alleviate some of their stresses and show them love, dignity, respect, and support in order to prevent that recidivism rate from continuing to grow. Um, everybody deserves a second chances. And as we know from research and, and common sense, the greatest catalyst for those that have offended in the past, not to reoffend, is to certainly receive the support and the services that uh, Bridges to Hope is providing, but it's also making sure that they're gainful, gainfully employed with the job. What's your perspective on what I just said? And then I'm probably going to bring uh, Laura Epke in from our staff to talk about that further. And we're going to dive into LB16 a little bit. Absolutely. So we've even served those that have had lucrative jobs and uh, been uh, business owners themselves and struggle with alcoholism or addiction and have gotten um, DUIs and, and had to serve time in prison. And then upon release, um, cannot find a job and are working at Casey's uh, because of that stigma and, and because of their record. There's not um, many job opportunities. And, and part of that success begins with their basic needs. You know, if their basic needs are not met, if they don't have clean clothing, if they don't have um, fresh underwear on, it really um, impacts their feeling of self-worth and their confident level, confidence level. And so, um, you know, it's our responsibility to give them that encouragement and um, meet their basic needs so that they can go out with confidence in their interviews. Laura, you've been in the workforce space for a while. We've been pushing uh, for universal recognition. LB16 for a few sessions. Why don't you walk our listeners through once again, remind them what LB16 is about, what universal recognition is about, but most importantly, why the Platt Institute thinks that helping those that have been incarcerated, finding meaningful careers is important and how that is tied into uh, that piece of legislation. Sure. Well, um, LB-16 it started out as a universal recognition almost entirely, which means that if you are licensed in another state, you can um, come to Nebraska and we will recognize that license for purposes of the um, the, the scope of practice that we have in, in Nebraska. You just If you can do something more in another state, doesn't mean you're going to be able to do it more in Nebraska if our licenses don't allow it. Um, that said, that you know, bringing people to Nebraska is one good way to to encourage the workforce. But but another way, and, and something that we decided to do with with LB sixteen, what was to add on um, the the second chances component. And the second chances component really just says that um, if you are making good, you know, in your life, and you're trying to get an education, and you're trying to get training. Um, for an occupation that requires a state license, um, we're not going to hold that against you forever. And so um, LB-16 second chances component requires, um, it requires that 
licensing boards can no longer use this sort of nebulous, good character, moral turpitude kind of phrasing um, or, or can't exclude you automatically because you have a felony conviction. What it does instead is it, it, it tries to create a nexus between um, the conviction that you had and the job. And if, it, it, if, if, there's, if there's no um, substantial relationship between the occupation that you seek a license for and the, 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 the conviction, um, then they won't use it anymore. Um, and and that's, that, that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to open up new opportunities. Um, and sometimes if you've been convicted of something, you know, we've, we've heard the story, um, you know, several years ago from um, a, a gal who um, was in Omaha who had been in prison for substance abuse and um, got out of prison um, at, you know, in, early, in her early 20s, made good with her life, decided to go to college and then graduate school. And then when she was going to work on a doctorate degree, found out that she'd never be able to get licensed in Nebraska because she had that conviction on her record even though what she would have been doing um, is to provide counseling to others who had gone through the same experience that she had. So and I think that we need to take into consideration um, some of those things and not automatically exclude people because of their record. Rhonda, would you like to weigh in on that legislation or the, the component that Dr. Epke just talked about? Well, we see that so often with the people that we serve. Um, the obstacles they face in, uh, you know, obtaining jobs because of their record. And fortunately, there has been some strides in the right direction. We have um, a volunteer who uh, was convicted of a sex offense and uh, is now in law school at UNL, um, you know, law school. And that's the other thing that we have to remember is like with the mandatory minimum sentences, just because there's a certain type of, of conviction um, doesn't necessarily mean it's an egregious act or, uh, you know, for instance, this this person, it was one of the situations where the age difference was um, legally in Nebraska not acceptable, but it was nothing egregious. It was nothing forceful, but they still are on the registry and they still have um, that record following, and uh, he was fortunate that um, he now, you know, has talked to uh, the college. And when you explain the situation and everything, um, they accepted him into the program. He's an upstanding citizen. He uh, volunteers quite frequently. He's actually uh, one of our board members now. So um, I think it's great to see, you know, what Laura and the legislature is trying to do about um, all of these situations, not just the mandatory minimum sentencing, but, um, you know, trying to, to uh, recognize the different degrees of convictions and, and um, you know, get rid of those labels. Rana, you're one of the, Bridges to Hope was one of the recipients of one of our micro grants and our micro grants program. I want first Laura, to maybe walk our listeners through why we decided to engage with these micro grants. And then I'm going to come back to you, Rhonda, and tell us a little bit how you plan to use that grant and why it's important to your organization. Sure. So um, the reason why we decided to, to work on the micro grants was really that we had um, we had the opportunity to look at, you know, 
the second chances piece of the legislature of LB 16. And we wanted to figure out um, what else we could do. And it, it occurred to us and talking to some of the other staff members that one of the things that is missing is that, um, you know, we say, well, we're going to relieve these barriers um, by, by getting rid of the, you know, by creating second chances. But in reality, um, we're not getting, we're not digging down deep enough because somebody who is fresh out of prison, um, who needs um, a, a handout, we weren't doing that. All we're doing is removing the the licensing barriers. So um, we started looking around at ways that we could do this. And um, and, and as part of our larger dignity project um, that, that we're, we're doing, um, we decided that that this might be a way to help, but we can't do it ourselves. And so we saw all of these good organizations out there who are already in the re-entry arena um, working with folks. And we thought, well, maybe we can help them a little bit to help others and then put those folks in, a, then they can help us put those folks in a position to actually address the licensing issues. So Rhonda, uh, walk us through as one of our micro grant recipients, how you plan to use the funds and, and why it's important to your organization? Sure, so we plan to use it for underclothes. Um, Bridges to Hope receives an abundance of gently used clothing items from everywhere, but um, underwear is one of those that nobody really wants to have gently used at all. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there it's not cheap to go out and buy a pack of, of underwear either. And so um, we're going to use that to purchase new new underclothes for our reentrants so that we can um, at least give them a uh, a couple pair each and uh, have a good start with it. And why is having clean clothes so important to those that are in your program? I mean, well, I like I, I said earlier, it, Go it, ahead. Sound, it, it sounds so um, odd that I'm even asking that question, but it's important, right? It really is. Like I said earlier, it's, it's a matter of, you know, imagine yourself getting up and not having um, clean clothes before you're going to a job interview. What do you need most? You need that that strength, that encouragement, that confidence going into an interview to get that job. And if you're walking in there with soiled clothes or no underclothing, um, you feel that apprehension to to really step up and and have that confidence to sell yourself and and get that job. And so. Um, something as simple as that. People don't think about those things, but something as simple as that or having deodorant, having clean, you know, um, hair or shampoo and everything. People just don't don't think of that because it's so uh, it, it's taken for granted from everybody else. And, um, you know, people reentering the community, every penny counts and, and the hygiene products and the underclothing can get very expensive. And so um, you know, we want to make sure that they have that confidence and that feeling of self-worth and that dignity so that they can go out and, and conquer that job interview. Absolutely. Okay, so I understand that Bridges Dope is planning a tiny home community in Lincoln. Walk us through a little bit about that project, how that is a necessary component to helping these people make a transition back into society. and. How will you be deciding on who gets access to this community? 
So that's a, a super exciting project that has actually been a, a dream of mine since 2017. Um, NIFA had invited me to present at one of their conferences, and Pastor Dan Bryant from Eugene, Oregon, was also at that same conference. And he was speaking about his tiny home villages that he has in Oregon for homeless veterans and general homeless population. And in serving the population that we serve, the obstacles we see are jobs and housing, um, affordable housing in safe, stable locations in the community are extremely difficult to find. Landlords are not real forgiving of those with records. And so I said, why not Lincoln? Let's get a tiny home village together in Lincoln and um, make it affordable so that reentrants have a place to parole to. There's several people that could be out that don't have anywhere to parole to because there's no safe, stable housing. And so um, the idea came together. We had breakfast at Bridges with the Department of Corrections, contractors, developers, city council members, and said, look, let's make this a community effort and make it benefit everybody. So what we're doing is uh, the city of Lincoln has donated property to us right across from Matt Talbot on North 27th Street. The Department of Corrections is working with us because we will have those that are incarcerated actually doing the building of these tiny homes. Um, they're working with Millard Lumber. Millard Lumber is uh, partnering with the Department of Corrections as is Metro Community College. Metro Community College already has a construction class at Tecumseh. And Tecumseh has the facility to build these framings of these homes and the trusses. And then they will um, transport them from Tecumseh to the property. Then we can have those that are on work release and work detail come to the site and erect the buildings, erect the homes. So those that are incarcerated are learning a lucrative skill and obtaining um, experience for careers when they are released. And who knows if those that are put in hammer to nail will be in one of those houses eventually. So the houses, the village, Hope Village, Bridges to Hope, Hope Village, um, we will have 20 tiny homes ranging from 250 to 500 square foot. The 250 square foot homes will be like studio homes with probably Murphy beds. And the 500 square foot will be two bedrooms for um, families, those that have families. And we will also have um, two of the homes that will be handicap accessible. We are going to charge them $1 per square foot. Now, tell me that's not affordable. We're talking about an affordable housing crisis here in Lincoln and places for the homeless. And $1 per square foot, a two-bedroom home with a kitchen, their own bathroom, $500 plus utilities. That's affordable. We are also uh, relocating Bridges to Hope's donation center. And we'll have a community center adjacent to that so that the residents can um, have their family gatherings, holiday gatherings. They'll have a kitchen there. They'll have coin-operated laundry facility in the community building so they don't have to drag their laundry everywhere. And we are also um, planning to have a village council similar to the city council. So when you're asking about who's going to decide who the residents are, this village council will consist of residents from Bridges to Hope, the Mental Health Association, 
Lincoln Police Department, somebody from Matt Talbot, and uh, some of the residents. They'll elect their own members um, for the village council. But we're also including the neighbors because everybody um, is a little apprehensive when something new comes into their neighborhood. So when you include the neighbors and let them have a voice, then it becomes a lot more successful. These are not going to be transitional houses. This is not transitional housing. It's permanent supportive housing. So as long as they're abiding by their agreements, then they're allowed to stay. Bridges to Hope will own the property, essentially be the landlords, and we'll be there six days a week to monitor how this is functioning. And I just, um, I, I really believe with everybody involved, we've got White Castle Roofing has donated um, four roofs, committed to doing four of the roofs. We can go to other roofing companies and get the others donated. Um, Mike Rezac from Rezac Construction is helping with uh, the coordination of the project. Again, I said Millard Lumber, um, Wellman Plumbing and Heating, they're contributing. So by getting everybody involved, that's where you see your successes. And I'm confident that once everybody sees the success of this tiny home village, it will expand and there will be more coming to Lincoln on a regular basis. And one other thing I'd like to mention, if I can, is um, Bridges to Hope is privately funded. So that means we aren't restricted by government um, rules and regulations. If we have a couple houses that are sitting empty, we won't let them sit empty. If there's a homeless veteran who's not been incarcerated, we can invite them into our village. If there's a homeless mother sleeping in her car with her babies, we can invite them into our village because we are privately funded. We're not going to let those houses sit empty. So like a fantastic project. Thanks for your leadership there. All right, we're going to close out the episode here. One final question to wrap it up, Rhonda. Tell our listeners once again why it's important for organizations like Bridges uh, to Hope to provide services and support for basic needs for, for those that uh, you're serving. Um, it's, it's important because if you don't have your basic needs met, uh, it's, um, like a domino effect. It affects your self-esteem, your self-worth, your self-confidence. Um, you need that support in order to be successful. And the more, um, love and dignity and respect that we can show those that are reentering our community, um, the better off it is for everybody involved. Rhonda Mattingly from Bridges to Hope has been my guest, along with Laura Epke on this episode of Nebraskanomics. Rhonda, thank you for joining me today. And most importantly, thank you for the mission of Bridges to Hope, your leadership and what you provide to our state. You're sure welcome. And thank you guys for the opportunity in this grant. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more economic freedom in Nebraska, please visit platinstitute.org to make a donation to help fund our research and advocacy. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter and learn about today's most important issues facing Nebraskans. It's time to stop the status quo. Let's remove economic barriers and make Nebraskans proud.